Friends, would you bow and pray with me? Father, some time to sing together about your love um, draws us close to you, draws us close to one another, draws us close to the most profound reality of life, draws us into a position to, to long to hear from you, long to connect with you, uh, because we're coming in with this position of truth of knowing that you love us with this astounding love, uh, this unimaginable love, this unconditional love. And so, Father, I pray that this is the setting for us, for all of us, whether we've come here as followers of Jesus or not, that we might be struck by your love, and it might compel us then to want to lean into your love. It might compel us to believe, to have this faith, to have this trust, that because you love us so and because you're so good, that we would want to follow and yield and be yours and be uh, remade and remolded by you and by your son, Jesus. And so, Father, may this be the case for us this morning, and may the way we think and listen and hear and process and respond, may it give you such joy and such honor today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It is really good to have you guys here today. Every one of you, I'm so glad that you guys are here today. We're at the, uh, the end, the very last week of this series we've done, looking at the lives of spiritual giants from Scripture. We've looked at some of the, some of the biggest, some of the ones that... In reality, their life was they followed God with abandon. They had such deep belief in him, and it led them to such courage and to such boldness and, and to such a life. And we look back at their lives now, and we can be inspired by their, their faith and their boldness and their courage and, and so on. But we've chosen not to look at, at all of those strengths. We've chosen to look at their failures of these spiritual giants and learn from their failures. So today is the last one of those. This is about the Apostle Peter. This is the one that Jesus would handpick to lead his church. And so this was the one that Jesus said, You of all people, Peter, you have the giftedness, the wirings, the calling from me and God the Father to be the one to lead my church. And Jesus would nickname him the rock. He would be the immovable one, the unshakable one. And from the time uh, following the resurrection and from the day that, that Christ sent the Holy Spirit to begin living inside of every Christ follower from that very day, Peter's probably most known for his courage and his boldness. So many times I read what he did from Acts 2 on, and I think, God, if, if only you gave me a fraction of that, only a fraction of that courage and that strength and that boldness. And I give you some examples of it in, in Acts 2 is the place where this is seven weeks after the crucifixion it, uh, that it's the day that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and, and this is what happens. Uh, Peter, on, on that morning when the Holy Spirit is sent, there's this big crowd that gathers up that God kind of stirs them and gathers them up in the city of Jerusalem. It's the very city where seven weeks before, this city has, um, has crucified Jesus with a lot of joy and satisfaction. And so this crowd gathers, and Peter stands before them. And among other things, this is what he says in Acts 2.36. He says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. I mean, this boldness, he's, he's talking to the ones that crucified Jesus gladly, the ones that have power, and he's saying, you crucified Jesus, but he's risen from the dead. He's Lord and he's Messiah, and he goes on and, and talks and teaches further, and by the time the day's done, there are 3,000 people now that place their faith in Jesus. Uh, a little bit of time passes, and there's a day that 
Peter and John see this man that's been lame for 40 years. For 40 years he can't walk, and he's asking for money to have uh, food to eat. And Peter says to him, we don't have any money to give you, but we'll give you what we have. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Rather than food for a meal, Jesus will heal you. You can work again. You can have the satisfaction of working and making money and providing food again. And, and sure enough, Jesus heals the guy on the spot through Peter and John. And that gets him into trouble because it's done very publicly. And again, the city is still opposed to Jesus and the people that follow Jesus. And so Peter is called in, along with John, to the religious authorities that crucified Jesus a while before. So this is what he says to them. He says, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that, that he, this man, was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in scriptures where it says, the stone that you build is rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. His great boldness. And so these religious leaders that kill Jesus and have, have that kind of power, they gather up, they come back then to, to Peter and John, and they say, here's the deal. Never, never speak the name of Jesus again. We don't know all that they said, but, but we know what was at least implied it was at least implied, you know who we are, and you know what we're capable of, and you know what we did to your leader, and we can do the same to you. And so this is Peter's response, actually Peter and John in, in Acts 4, 19 and 20. Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we've seen and heard. He said, I don't care who you are or what you're capable of or what you've done. I don't care. We're going to continue telling people about Jesus. So some time passes, and, and they get in more trouble. They've been thrown in jail by this time, and, and now they're called again before these religious leaders, and again they're told never to speak of, of Jesus again. And five, chapter 5, verse 29, But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. Audience of one. We're going to look to God, turn to God, follow God. Nobody else, not even you. And so then they get flogged badly for that. That means beaten badly for that. A number of years, probably some extended time, probably a number of years pass, and the hatred for Jesus and the followers of Jesus continues. Actually, it escalates. And there's a point in Acts 12 where it says that King Herod arrested one of the other apostles, James, one of the other leaders, arrests James and, and beheads him. And Jerusalem celebrates so mightily the beheading of James, this follower of Jesus, that Herod thinks, well, I'll, just, I'll get more acclaim from this city. And so he has Peter arrested, thrown in jail, and the clear intention is that once this Passover is over, that he'll put him on trial, and he has the power to do this, and he'll do the same for Peter, and his ratings will go even higher. And so Peter's in prison. This is so cool in Acts 12, verse 6. <laughs> the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, <laughs> fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. The odds are 99.9999991. He's about to be executed, and he's sleeping. Does it bother him? No. Audience of one. 
I don't care what anyone says or does or threatens. I just don't care. I'm going to follow God, and I'll be at peace with following God. He was, Peter was the unwavering, immovable rock, yet he, even he was susceptible to bending to the culture. Uh, some years pass. In, it will be in Galatians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, if you picked up a Bible coming in, it's on page 891, where will be Galatians 2, starting verse 11. This was the setting at this time. Uh, Paul is writing uh, to the church at Galatia, and, and he's talking about this issue. Uh, the, here's the deal. If, if you're new to pondering Christianity, this is what Christianity is. To be made right with God, there's, there's only one thing to do. It's to place one's faith in Jesus. And that's a very profound thing because to place one's faith in Jesus means to surrender to his leadership. It means to put myself under his authority. It means that my heart and desires, my faith is in him and who he is. And therefore, I will, my, my desire is I will follow his leadership. And that's all Christianity is. But through the years and during this time we're about to read about, during, during this time and through the years... So many times it's become confused. It's place your faith in Jesus and do some other things. And there's a list, and the list changes through the years. It, to be a Christian, you place your faith in Jesus, and you do this and this and this. And there's some kind of list. Sometimes it's one more item of behavior. Sometimes it's three. Sometimes it's 20, and on and on and on. And so that was what was going on here. And, and Paul had recognized how dangerous that is and how inaccurate that is. It's just faith in Jesus. It's just surrendering to the leadership of Jesus. That's all it is. And, and here's the deal. When we surrender to Jesus' leadership, then, then he brings about all the changes that all those laws would have brought and even more. But he's the one providing the power to change and the guidance to change. He's the one. He, there is behavioral change, but it comes out of this uh, beautiful, transforming relationship of following him. Not out of a list of laws and you and me deciding, okay, I'll check that one, check that one, check that one. So that was the dilemma going on that Paul is writing into. And so in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 13, and then verse 16, he says this. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. In other words, there was this this group of followers of Jesus who had all done the one thing God asked. I just trust Jesus. They had all done that. And some were Jews and some were Gentiles. Some had been circumcised, some not. And, you know, some ate this and some ate that and on and on and on. But they were all Christians. Peter knew that. And, and so he would eat with the Gentile Christians that were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, by the way, this isn't James the Apostle. This is James, one of the brothers of Jesus, and he was one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. When, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insist on the necessity of circumcision. So this crowd shows up, and, and they've gotten confused again, or maybe they stayed confused. And they're thinking, you know, to be right with God, it's to, to place our faith in Jesus and be circumcised. And so they show up, and there are these Gentiles there that... Everyone's been eating together, having fellowship together, and they show up and, and they say, this isn't right because it's Jesus and. And some of these people, they may have placed their faith in Jesus. They haven't done the and. And Peter bends to that, and Paul says he was afraid of criticism from these people. The rock, 
like the unshakable one, was afraid of criticism from these people. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Yet, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And I found myself thinking, if Peter, the immovable, unwavering rock, if he could, could be prone to bending to culture, how much more so would I? How much more so would you and I? So the teaching that is about to unfold now, this is really important to, to understand this. The teaching that I'm about to give, it's really, it's for those of you that have placed your faith in Jesus. So it's to those of you that have said, I'm surrendering leadership to you, Jesus. Because, because out of that, your motive is solely to follow him. And so those of us that follow Jesus, we, we really believe what Jesus said in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. We believe that. And so we believe that he's worthy of following. We own that. We believe that. He's the way, the truth, and the life. We really believe what Jesus said in John 10, 10. He said, the enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy, but I came to give you life and life to the fullest. We really believe that. It's out of this relationship with him, this trust in him, that we say to him, show me what to do, guide me, guide me, give me direction, help me become more like you want me to be. It's out of that. It's not out of a list. It's not out of behavioral modification. It'd be so easy to hear everything else I say and, and begin to make a list and say, I'm going to try to just change my behaviors. The whole drive, the whole motive, the whole impetus of a Christian is because I find you so worthy, I, I want you to show me, and I, I want to be influenced by you and you alone, my audience of one, and I don't want to be shaped by culture. I don't want to take my leading from culture. I want to take my leading from you and you alone. And so, so if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I want you to hear all this in the context of if you someday place your faith in him, then then out of the drive of your belief in his worthiness in following him, then these are things that would apply to you as well. Does that make sense? Make sense? Okay, good. I'm going to keep asking until a bunch of you nod your head. Make sense? Okay, you want to go home today? That's good. I'm glad it makes sense. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let me ask this. So who influences us? Who has the potential to influence us? Well, family, certainly. Friends, certainly. Classmates, if you're in school at any level. Co-workers, if you work in a workplace, if it's more than just you at work, co-workers do, neighbors do, correct? TV certainly does, the movies do, social media does. I would suggest anything anyone we come into contact with might influence us. The influences upon us could be anything anyone that comes into contact with us. Those are, those are the influences. And then I found myself thinking about us as a church, about FCC as a church, and I've been prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit, what are the places that we're most prone to bending to culture. In many cases, just unknowingly, but what are the, the places we're most prone to bending to culture? And so I want to offer about half a dozen. I won't linger on any of them long, but I would invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to have this wide open heart and mind with th this renewed mindset. He is so worthy of following. I, I want to know if I've been into culture, I want to know. One place that, that I see that we might be prone is in the area of integrity. If you're making notes, just jot down 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, the area of integrity. Because much, much of the culture, and you know as much of the culture says that, that cheating is really okay in many sectors, many places of our life. It, it's okay 
much of the culture. It's okay in schoolwork to uh, just it's just cutting corners, but to to cheat in schoolwork. It's okay to cheat in the workplace and stretch an expense report, or to take some supplies, or to to change some reports or some decisions, or or state some things in ways that aren't fully accurate, fully honest, fully truthful for the advantage that I might have, or the company might have, or the pressures being placed upon me. There's so much of the culture that says it's okay to, to bend, to be dishonest in those places. The culture says it's okay to cheat on our taxes because the government wastes a lot of it anyway. And so there's so many areas of our life that just the culture says it, it's okay not to be fully honest in this area or that area or that area. First Timothy 4.12 says... Teach believers, this is written to a follower of Jesus, teach believers with your life by word, by demeanor, by love, by faith, by integrity. Teach others by these aspects, and one of the key aspects is, is integrity. Not integrity most of the time. Not integrity when people go along with it. Not integrity when, when it's going to cost you or gain you. Just, just model for the Christ followers the life of following Jesus is this absolute integrity, complete, absolute integrity. Whatever it costs, if it costs, if you're in the school world, if it costs class rank, if it costs potential future employment, if you're in the workplace, if it costs promotion or raise or even keeping your job, if it costs financially, the leadership of Jesus is just, just do what is honest all the time. And those of us who follow Jesus, we believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we believe the best life is following him. Even when in circumstances it may mean I don't get the class rank, I don't get the promotion, or I lose my job, or financially it costs me, even when it means that, we just believe he's worthy of following. And our faith says, the statement of our faith is simply you're my audience of one. That's what I want. That's what I long for. Is this one, as you privately with the Spirit leading, look at your life, is this one where you are prone to bend? second one is simply around language. And jot down Ephesians 5.4. Ephesians 5.4. And you'll recognize this in the media, at the health club, in restaurants, in stores. It seems now in the culture's eyes, nothing is considered too crude, or too obscene, or too profane, too irreverent, too inappropriate, too offensive, doesn't it? Uh, in fact, I've, I've lived a few short decades, and just thinking back, the culture's been shifting and shifting. And the culture does that. What the culture says is right today wasn't right 50 years ago, and it'll change 50 years from now. The culture does that. God never does. God never does. And so nothing is, is, is too out of bounds, it seems. In Ephesians 5.4, speaking to followers of Jesus, it says, obscene stories foolish talk, and coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Just if you're a father, it's not for you. Just not for you. Philippians 4.8 talks about, Paul's writing saying, think about, among other things, think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. And part of that is because what we think about will say. You can take that, think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable and, and speak in those ways. Speak in those ways. This is what I've found, and I would offer this to you. This is not from Scripture, but it sure has been helpful to me and practical. 
Think about if you were invited to be the guest speaker at one of the local kindergarten classes. And think about the words you'd be sure that you didn't say in the kindergarten classroom. And that list that you would make, that's a safe list just to exclude for the rest of your life. Okay? And if you actually, if you're a little, a little too cautious, what harm has it done? What harm has it done? And if you find that you think I'm going to exclude all of these and you realize I have no more adjectives left. I said this a few years ago. I hardly ever speak on this, but I said, buy a thesaurus. And some of you did. Uh, just a little effort, just expand your vocabulary. Learn another five or six or eight or 12 adjectives and start using those till they become habit. Because the way of Jesus, he says, your language actually matters to me and you're modeling what I'm like and I just don't want you to, to use anything that'd be obscene or profane or offensive. Just, just don't go there. And, and don't, don't be so self-righteous. You're thinking, well, this one, I'm, this one I think is okay. I'm not sure I think so. I'm just going to use it. Find another adjective. I, I, <laughs> I pull my thesaurus off the shelf uh, every week. And uh, at this point, it's not to avoid profanity. It's to find better adjectives with this. But th- thesauruses are cheap, and they are thick, and there are a lot of options. There are a whole lot of options, Okay. Is this one, we talked about integrity, now language is one, is that one you tend to bend to the culture? Third, possessions. Write down Job 41.11. Job 41.11, possessions. The culture says that we should make all that we can and consume it for ourselves. And hopefully we'll be able to pretty much keep up with the people around us. And so it means to make all that I can and consume all I can. And so hopefully in terms of, of my neighbors and the people around me or the crowd I hang out with, that in terms of houses and cars and clothing and vacations and toys, I'm, I'm at least keeping up or at least staying close, at least where it looks like I'm close. And the culture says so much of your worth and status is based upon what you have when Golly, I'd gotten a big promotion in the old business a long time ago. This was before Jesus in our lives. And the culture that I was in said, you buy more house than you can afford. You buy more because you always make more and more and more and more money. It had been a few good years in the oil business. This may sound familiar. There had been a few good years. And in my time in the oil business, that was true. And so with this big promotion, we bought about five and a half acres and we uh, built more house than we could afford because I knew how big the raises had been. And about a year later, the oil business went bust and the raises weren't as big anymore. And we found ourselves on financial fumes. And I found myself thinking back to all those people that advised me, buy more than you could afford. And I think back of my heart. I really thought that part of my worth would be established and stated by how much we had that was visible. When you think about it, how messed up is that? In Job 41, 11, God says, everything under heaven is mine. Everything under heaven is mine. Your house, your car, your clothes, your gold, your silver, your toys, the vacations, they're all God's. And God, out of his love, he's guided us in how to use our possessions And in in his guidance, there's this radical generosity that he tells us about and leads us into. And there's there's appropriate savings he leads us into and all those things. 
And it has nothing to do with status or keeping up or having more of at all. He's saying, my way, my way is very, very different. It's not to take what you have and consume it for yourself and try to have more and more and more. Sometime after that, that house, um, we met Jesus, began to follow him and had a couple more moves. And I mentioned recently a couple more downsizes of houses because of what God was teaching us. And so we're in this new state. We actually lived in the woodlands at that point, which has some of the struggles that some areas around here have of affluence. And one of my employees, I'd been to his house. It was a big house. It was a very expensive house in one of the really, really nice areas of the woodlands. And so some time passed, and he came to our house to bring some report or something to my house off hours. And he comes into the house, and he's looking around. I can tell he's a little off-center with everything. And he finally just blurts out. He says, why do you live here? <laughs> I, I knew what he meant, but I, did, I wasn't going to let him off the hook. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you've, you've been to my house, and... You could afford a couple upgrades of mine. Why? Like, what's wrong with you? Why do you live here? And, and I laughed and said, do you have five minutes? And I told him about the pre-Jesus more and more and more and more and about Jesus and how Jesus said, there's a better way. And I said, so this is all the space we need. We're comfortable and we have so much more like, joy in life. And this is the life right here. And uh, he went off very confused. And uh, so... <laughs> It's part of what God says about, you know, teach others by not just your words, by, by your actions, by, by all that you do as well. So what about you with possessions? Do you find that you've been bending to culture on possessions? Okay, integrity, language, possessions, sexuality. Uh, of note, put Matthew chapter 5, verses 27, 28. There actually, there are a lot more passages, but last fall, we spent three weeks in the House of Lies series talking about sexuality. And so if you want and yearn for need more biblical basis for this, you can go back to that series, easily access it, get all the biblical basis. But our culture says that, that, it's, that pornography is acceptable. Our culture says that. No problem with that. Who are you hurting? Culture says that sexual intimacy between two consenting people that are old enough is acceptable. And old enough is defined by whomever is talking. Okay? That's what culture says. Culture says that, that, uh, if, you, that if you're in love... You can live together before marriage. Culture says that's acceptable. Culture says that, that um, if you experience same-sex attraction, then same-sex intimacy is acceptable, and even same-sex marriage is acceptable. But this is what God says out of love. He says that sexual intimacy and expression, he is reserved solely between a husband and a wife. Solely. Again, so many passages. I can't spend the whole message on this one, but so many passages. But, but God says out of love, he says, I know I've made you. And, and the only sexual intimacy or expression at all, he says, it's been designed between a husband and a wife. Not, not for those who are in love, not for those who are engaged to be married, but for those who are married, husband and wife who are married. And in this passage I have for you, Matthew 5, 27, 28, Jesus says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying, here's the standard. Apart from your husband or wife, if you're married, then you're not to pursue any sexuality even in your mind. Why? He says, because I made you, I know you, I love you. Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus saying, I have, I have the abundant life for you. Trust me in this one. Trust me in this one. Trust me on this one. Is this one... 
that you have been to, or, or at least in your mind's eye, whether you've gone there or not, that you've been to and been to the culture versus hearing from God, hearing from Christ and following there. I'll give you a couple more. One, this next one is discrimination. Write down Galatians 3.28. Uh, and this, man, this really hits me fresh in this uh, political season of the presidential election cycle. Um, it, when I hang around with people that think like I do or look like me or are like me in whatever possession, whatever sector I'm looking at of life, it is so easy for us to begin to think that we're better than those other people. Uh, whoever they are, whatever it is. In politics, it's so easy if I hang around people and I have political views uh, I, I'm not going to tell you them. I will teach what God says about values and morals. I'll teach all of that, and then you decide where to go with it. But I have political views. And if I hang around with people that just share my views, it's not long before I start thinking those other people, I, I tend to think that they're not as good as I am, as we are. Or it plays out in race. And if I hang around with people that are just all my race, it's so easy to think, well, but those other, those other people aren't as good as I am or we are. By the way, this goes both political parties. It goes whatever race is involved. Ethnicity, the same thing. If I hang out with people of the same ethnicity, then it's not too long before it's so easy to start thinking, but we're better than those other people. Again, it doesn't matter what the ethnicity is. In socioeconomic status, again, it doesn't matter which direction, up or down. It's so easy to think, think that we are better than they are. In educational sense, again, doesn't matter if it's more or less. It's so easy to think that we are better than they are. And yet in Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, there's, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. These were the big divisive factors. These were the three areas people would look at. I'm, I'm better than those others. Jew, Gentile, whichever side, doesn't matter, I'm better than them. Slave or free, even the slave would think, I'm better I may have the lower position, but I'm better than them. Male or female, same thing. I'm better than them. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. No room for that. No room for that. Do you find that you have bent or you're prone to bending there? One more. Body image. Write down Psalm 139, verses 13 to 17. Body image. The culture says that we need to look a certain way to be attractive or to be valued. We have to have this certain look, certain appearance to be attractive or valued. In Psalm 139, the psalmist is writing about how God has um, fearfully and wonderfully crafted him, knit him together in his mother's womb. And at some point he says, your workmanship is marvelous. The way you made me is marvelous. And that's true of every human being. And there are some in this room, if you were to own that, it would change your world. The way God knitted, knitted you together in your mother's womb is beautiful and attractive and valued. And if you were to own that and know that's true, in the eye of the beholder, the one with, the only one with good eyes, you're already beautiful. But culture would say, no, you need to look different. You need to do whatever it takes to look different. It, it's one thing, uh, back early 2015, we did this series called The Pursuit of Health. It's one thing to pursue health. We should do that. We should do that. But not so we attain a certain body image. God loves the core fundamental DNA he gave you. It, it's given me this 
big nose, and it's giving me genetics where my hair is disappearing. It's giving me all that. He loves it. He loves it. Are, are you finding yourself bending to culture on this one? Why does it matter? One is it's relationship with God matters. Not that we would lose our relationship with God, but if we ignore what God says or reject what God says and we bend and do what culture says or think what culture says, we have to just acknowledge that's a sin. We're going against what God says, against God's direction and will. It's a sin. And anytime we sin, then there's not the same intimacy. We haven't lost a relationship, but there's, there's this tension that's there. It's like when I was a kid and I was under my father and mother's leadership and I would mess up a little or a lot. I wasn't disowned as a son and they didn't love me any less. But, but until it got resolved, there was tension there. There wasn't this close, cuddly intimacy until it got resolved. Okay, so it, it affects the relationship we have with God. Second, it, it affects the quality of our life because if you're a Christ follower, then like me, you, you own John 10.10. 10, where he said, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. I, I, I keep in front of me several times a week just the numbers 10 colon 10. 10, 10. And several times a week, I look at those numbers. And I'm just reminded, his life is the best life. It is the best life. And as the years unfold and I look back with retrospect, I find that's actually true. That's actually true. And then, and then there's this influence upon others as well. The influence. Peter had that influence upon others that Paul referenced. He said when Peter began to say that those that don't have Jesus and in this case, and circumcision, then they're excluded. They're not part of us. They're not part of this fellowship. And others followed. In fact, all of the other Jewish followers of Jesus, except Paul, followed. Even Barnabas, the most graceful guy in the New Testament, they all followed. We have influence upon others. I've seen that influence work in such positive ways around here. Around, around sexuality, we've had an increasing number of people that have said openly, they've said, I... I understand that pornography uh, is is a sin. It's not God's way. It's not God's path. It's a sin. And and their story is that I'm following Jesus and he's helping me live that out in purity. And I've seen the ripple effect of that is growing now. More and more people follow Jesus here are saying, I I too want to abandon it, or I too am in process of abandoning it, or I too and I've had a long run of abandoning it. Uh, there are a number of people here that have talked openly about at one point they thought casual sex was fine. And they've said, I understand that that's not. And I've abandoned that. I no longer will do that anymore. And I see the ripple effect of that. I have seen people here that that um, that lived with someone that they loved and in some cases were engaged to. They lived with them, but they came to a point of realizing that's not what Jesus says. And they actually moved out. And they've told others, not out of some legalism, not out of checking some box, out of following Jesus and believing his way is best. They've actually moved out. In some cases, they lost a relationship. In others, they didn't. And there was a big change that happened and marriage happened. But I've seen the ripple of that. I've seen the influence now. There are more and more and more. I've seen among those that experience same-gender attraction, we've had more who have said, I experience same-gender attraction, but I know the way of Jesus is sexual purity and so I'm on this pathway of never pursuing that because I'm following Jesus and his way is best. And I'm seeing the ripple effect now of more and more and more saying, I will follow the same way. 
It matters because we have influence. A couple more things. How do we respond to culture? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. In John 1.14, it says, Jesus came filled with grace and truth. That means that we give, we give to people in our world, people in the culture, the culture, we give them this stunning, stunning kindness. Undeserved kindness. We give them full grace. We give them full truth also. We, we care enough. We give them grace enough, love enough to give them the full truth as well. We come full of grace and full of truth. So how do we avoid bending the culture? A couple things I, I'll give you is this. One is, is having this an audience of one mindset, of continually going to Christ and saying, uh, you are my audience of one. I'm, I, I'm playing for you. I'm playing for your applause, for your approval. Uh, guide me, show me. You're worthy. I'm not playing for anybody else. Not playing for the culture. Not playing for anybody. I'm, I'm playing for you. You guide me. And then secondly, this is what God gives us, is, is a band of brothers and sisters. There's so much power that by God's design occurs when, when followers of Jesus get together like we're doing today, or like small groups do, or serving teams do, get together and, and together long to follow Jesus with abandon. He works through that, and through this band of brothers, band of sisters. And sometimes it means, especially for a new Christian, it means, it means avoiding a bunch of other influences until your faith gets so strong and so strong you can, you can afford to be around some of those influences perhaps more. Okay? An audience of one, a band of brothers. All of this is what Jesus had in mind. On that Friday when he hung on the cross and his blood was shed, it was out of this stunning love. And he had in mind that there would be a day that, that you and I, and this is for you that already are or someday will be, that you and I would place our faith in him. And again, that means we would say to him, you are so worthy, so good, so knowledgeable, so powerful. I, I simply want to follow you. I want, I want to surrender to your leadership. And he knew that the moment we did that, that there'd be this relationship with God that would begin. He knew he would send the Holy Spirit to live in us and, and empower us to live this life. He knew there would be this brand new life that would get launched and there would be this potential of endless transformation until we step into heaven. He knew all that. He knew we would actually begin to live the better life, the best life. He knew all that when his blood was shed on the cross. And he said, I want you to remember often that time my blood was shed because I, I paid that price for all this potential for you. And so this is going to be one of those days as a church that, that we're going to celebrate his death, which led to his resurrection, which leads to new life for those of us that follow Jesus. Um, I'll give you, let me give you a few simple instructions, and then, and then I'll talk very briefly about this bread and this cup. In, in a few minutes when we do this, uh, to make things flow more easily, we'll have people that are serving the bread and the cup, uh, teams all the way across the front to the edges. At the two farthest edges, uh, we'll have gluten-free uh, cup and bread. And so if that's what you need, then go to one of the edges on the end. If you're on the floor, it's easier if you'll flow to your left and then down the aisles and then go back up the other side. If you're in the risers, then of course everyone goes to center. We'll have servers uh, in the back as well for you then. Um, and someone, when you come down, someone will break off a piece of bread for you and hand it to you, and then you can dip it in the cup and then eat the bread that's now been dipped in that cup then. 
This is what happened on the night that Jesus sat down with his followers and said that this is the, the night he'd be arrested. Thank you, Mark. He took the bread and he gave thanks to his Father in heaven and he broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and gave thanks to his Father and said, this is my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sins for you and for many. Drink this often in remembrance of me. So for all of you that have begun trusting Jesus, or all of you that long to, you're invited to come. And when you do, when the bread is broken, picture his body broken for you out of love. And when you dip it in the blood red cup, picture his blood being shed for you out of this potential of the life either you now have or the life you can begin if you trust him. Let me pray and then, and then come when you're ready. Father in heaven, thank you for such goodness. Thank you for giving us capacity to realize how good and loving you are. The, the, the capacity to realize that uh, your way is the best way. And out of this relationship, we can, we can live a new life in you. May this time of communion, may it be one with some deep spiritual reverberation of how much you love us, how much your son Jesus loves us, the price paid so we could have a relationship with you if we trust and follow. And the price paid so our lives could actually be transformed now, not just in heaven, but now. The price paid so someday we can indeed step into heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.